2: And on the topic of bits, let's erase any doubt. Todd's almost always joking when he says, edit it out. The intro goes long, cause Todd's so big hearted. Other podcasts end before hits get started. The intros are recorded on a phone, but don't worry. The audio of the show is at a higher quality. You know the Podcasters Association voted the time Glass Show and Well,
1: well, 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 you got to fucking vote. I know it's a pain in the ass. It's easy to say, maybe even lie and say you did. But I'm telling you, if you do it, you're going to feel so fucking amazing. It's You feel better than you think you think you're going to feel. You got to fucking vote. You got to vote. Steve Farnotch told me today, I hope he's right. Only like wait, he said very low percentage of young people were voting. I forget the number. I know why. It's like you lose the momentum when something happens and you're like, yeah, but no, we're so close. Vote. I don't care who you vote for. In this situation, just vote. Vote. You feel like you ran the marathon. You're like, I fucking did it. There's a lot of shit you might not have done. You might even, like, you might even, I'm, I'm going to compare it. I'm going to make this comparison. Like, you're going through sobriety. You might have difficulty with that even. This is something you can do. It's so doable, and it's so fucking powerful. It's so fucking powerful. And, and it's it's relatively easy. I'll tell you what, It's not, it's not easy if you don't compare it to how powerful it is. It's it's a pain in the ass at the surface. It's like, oh, is it going to matter? Even though that seems so cliche to say that, is it going to matter? I think deep down, sometimes you think, do they need my vote? I've been there most of my life. I haven't voted, so I get it. I told people I voted when I didn't vote because I was embarrassed. But not any, no, this is not the fucking time. It, it, I'm telling you, for so many goddamn reasons, you'll do it. You're going to be so fucking proud of it. When you get in that car and you shut the door or wherever you go, <laughs> it's what I did, um, and you're heading, You're just going to feel amazing. And any of your other... Hey, by the way, maybe you already... Uh, you don't have any shortcomings. Maybe you're overwhelmed, You're doing pretty good. We still got to fucking do it. But I'm just saying, if that's the case... It'll it'll do good things. Plus, it's more than it'll say more about you than just you voted. That's one thing, but it just says you did it. And that's the that's that's if you if you get this done, you vote, you get it done, you'll get other shit done. You just you just said, I'm gonna fucking do it. Excuse my language. But I know you're not gonna get people to vote by just going, don't forget to vote, you know. It's then start rattling off things that are true. But, you know. You know, it's 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 the the right, it's, a, it's, a, it's why we live in the United States. You got to go out there, people. Your vote can't, it, that's not going to help anybody. You got to fucking get in their guts and get in their head. That's what I'm trying to do to you. Especially young people. Especially young people. Come on, I always got your back. Don't make me look bad. All right. Okay, so now the opening of the show. Well, here's what it is. We didn't have time to do a typical show this week, but we have a show for you. Oh, how is that? You know what I want to bring back on the show? Silly Dancing. I know you can't see it, but God damn it, it's so much fun. I looked at old shows. Why am I cursing so much? A real potty mouth, huh? You're good? Okay so um but I, uh, it was uh the week before last peter mcgraw watch i'll say his name wrong he wrote a book well you'll hear it we explain it in the show but it's more of a traditional just you know interview about his book and and a comedy very intense conversation well not very intense just a a a good conversation a meaty conversation about comedy and some some uh some observations and and all that crap So, uh, no, no, you know what I mean, not all that crap. What if he's listening to the opening going, how dare he calls me? But we have a great conversation, and it says everything. It doesn't really need me to set anything up now. You'll learn anything you need to learn. So uh, that's today's show. And uh, next week we'll be back in the barn. I'm really getting excited. I'm doing some new stuff in there, and it makes me look forward to it, uh, to getting in there and, whew, you know, changing some things around. It's, you know, that's what uh, sometimes exciting, you know. Oh, I'll move that chair over three inches. (laughs) All right. How you doing? Ba, 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 ba. All right, so let's throw to the show. Let's throw to the show. And uh, next week will be a lot of fun. Okay, go vote.
2: Go vote. It's a good show.
1: Did I show this to you when you were when we were back no, here before? No, this is brand new. Oh I thought I did show it no, to you. I had no idea. Ah then I would have brought you even bigger. I thought he'd seen the studio before, so um so let me get settled here. Okay. We are recording, right? Alright, cool. I'm gonna put this over here. No matter how many weeks I do this, you would think I would know where I want everything, but it's not till I get in there. That's Vinny. That's my girlfriend's brother. Yes. There you we, go. We met briefly, I think. Right, case. right, and that's John. You met inside. Aristotle's yeah. over there. Hello. And uh, then we're going to do an after show once you're gone with uh, Mike Carano. But so uh, this is uh, this is, and I even wrote some notes down, Peter. Sweet. I'm so professional. Well, I'm an interviewer, you know. I, I have to, <laughs> and you can wear your headsets, but you don't have to. Okay, maybe I'll
3: give it a try. Right.
1: We sat down when you were uh, you were still writing the book. Yes. And uh, but I did your podcast. Yes, and I'm, you made it in the book. I, in oh, there. I did. Guys, come on. I'll get a nice round of applause. <laughs> come on. Um, and I love talking to you. You had, you know, you, re- you, um, you just had some really clean, clean perspective of comedy, which always calms me. And as much as I talk, which I know I, I, I went off. Um, I still uh, I still listen, and uh, I liked a lot of the things that you said. And so now the book coming the book comes out on April first, right? Yes. And it's called the shtick of. Uh, it's
3: called Shtick to Business. Shtick to Business. What the masters of comedy can teach you about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. And there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Sir. And then, and you know, uh, so sure. did you
1: did you uh, some of the like I saw. Uh, So, when you are, did you interview uh,
3: like Amy Poehler or is it breaking down? So, some people I interviewed and then some people I just based it off of observations of them, interviews of them, and so on. Right. Because when, because I, because Vinny said, uh, he said, uh, uh,
1: Groucho Marx. And I'm like, well, I know he didn't interview Groucho Marx.
3: No, but I did interview Groucho's assistant later in in Groucho's life. Really? And how, Steve Stolier. And he, I, I don't know what my first question is. How old is he now? Is he, he's got to be... Steve... God, I should be careful about this. He's certainly in his 50s. He might be in his 60s. Wow. And Groucho, and Groucho Mark's assistant. Yeah, so, so Steve was um, a student oh, at right. UCLA and uh, somehow got hooked up. Uh, it's actually... I, I interviewed him for I'm Not Joking, my podcast. Right, and right. He, um, he has a book called Raising Eyebrows about Ooh. Groucho and he gave me just tons of cool information about the Marx brothers.
1: I mean, there's a guy that's history he, he it, you know, com, good comedy I say will withstand the generations. You still go back to that stuff and it's it's pretty solid today. It's pretty solid, yeah, right? It it's amazing and you, and, I, and I and I like to watch that. I always like to go, "Wow, I've been watching Jonathan Winters lately." Ah. And do you, are you familiar with Jonathan yes, Winters? Yeah, yeah. And it's not like I didn't know he was great before, but you know how sometimes yeah, yeah, I know he's great, but then you go, "Oh,
3: I'm learning even he was even greater so So Steve has this great story that made it into the book about you know so one of the neat things about so you think about the Marx Brothers and you think about their comedy but you can also think about the way they approach their business as they move from vaudeville to Broadway and then to the big screen and what was fascinating was their their move to the big screen when we look back on it it seems sort of natural and they're just they're just winners Especially because, I don't know, there's some absurd number of their, I think like five of their comedies are in like the AFI top 100. Don't, you can't quote me on these numbers. Um, with Duck Soup being the number one right. You know, on the list. Well, when they were finishing up their, their contract of their first five films, they basically were getting dropped um, by their studio. Like their films didn't perform that well and uh, so they were contemplating going back to Broadway where audiences love them. And, man, I should know all these things because I wrote it. But, um, but Chico... But you, you're getting the, g- you're, you're, you're getting you're, the g- gist of this. Yeah, and,
1: and more than that. Yes. You, you miss a detail here and it doesn't affect the, 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 the you know... The, the takeaway st- for the story. The takeaway for the story. Right?
3: And so, the, so the, it was like the head of Paramount or something like this was, ha- was playing cards with Chico. And he said to him... I can make a film with you that gets half as many laughs and makes twice as much money. And and the idea was that the, the Marx Brothers were so used to performing live that um, they knew to pause when they, you know, when they had, uh, when, you know, when they hit a punchline because they were getting feedback in the moment. But their early films was like. Bam, 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 joke, 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 and the and audiences in the theaters would be laughing over subsequent jokes, and and in some ways didn't quite get to enjoy the film as much. Right, right. And who who pointed that out? This was like the the head of of like a competing studio and signed them for five more uh, five more. films
1: and you know you said something that it like and then I, I don't want to forget to start not start but ask you the one question i thought just want to establish obviously you know the book and and uh, and and the purpose of the book and all that because i love talking about comedy i love that you're here um but you were saying like that we just sort of watch their career like oh it just unfolded like we probably do to a lot of people that's what you meant, like, to us from, from afar. And I was obviously not around then to watch their comedy, but I knew what you meant. Like, you just see, oh, they went from that, and they, the story is then they did movies, and then they went to Broadway. But it just it wasn't, it, it really didn't unfold that easily. And uh, Yeah,
3: and, and that, you know, it takes a lot of work. I think this happens a lot. Um, I think it happens a lot in the world of science and, and art and literature and so on. When you look back, you know, we, we tend to, you know, we'd like to use this term renaissance person, you know, um, but when you look at, at careers, they're often really linear. Someone works on something, masters it, then moves on to the next thing, masters it. You know, so, so I like Steve Martin as an example of this. Right? You know, Steve Martin was one of the best stand-ups in the world, playing out arenas, and then um, you know, moved into TV and film, and you know, recently won a Grammy for banjo playing. <laughs> um, but what he, you know, what, so you look back at someone's career and you just, say, oh, he's good at everything. But that's not how we, you know, that's not how we approach it. Even, you know, even the Marx Brothers, they weren't actually as good at film as they could have been. There's some learning process right, right. that happens there. And um, uh,
1: so your first, uh, the first, what? You obviously are obsessed with comedy because someone asked me the other day we were talking about you coming in. I go, wonder, like, when did you? Is that, a, is that obsessed? Not obsessed, but. I mean, you, you, uh, you, you love to, you break it down as much as I love to break it down. And a lot of comedians that I know, we sit around, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to break down and try to figure out some things. And, uh, so, uh, what made you like, what was your background? What did you do? Yeah. Like, why? How, yeah where'd you, why? Uh, where are why you from? Yeah. Why, why are you, well, how did you get here?
3: Yeah. I think, you know, I have a friend who, um, he, he likes he, he, he describes me as a decoder you know, so there's coders in the world and there's decoders. And so I guess I I reluctantly accept that, that moniker from it. So, you know, I started my career kind of as a traditional academic, um, what I think um, lay people would call a behavioral economist. So studying emotions and decision-making. So how do people's emotions affect their choices and how their choices affect their emotions. And I, you know, I, I liked comedy and, I would say I wouldn't say I was a class clown by any means, but I kind of lean that way a little bit, especially as I started to get older. Um, but I, I I didn't I wasn't obsessed with understanding comedy. I didn't actually think that much of it. I just enjoyed watching it, listening to it, and then being funny with I my intrigued friends. would probably have been a better yeah. word. Well, no, no, but but it, it's become a bit of an obsession. I would say I knew it. <laughs> so I I I what happened was, and it's a, it's a I think like the lesson in this is you often don't, it's often important to pay attention to things. So I was studying uh, a question that's, that's I think parallel, which is what makes things wrong? You know, why do we find some things to be morally reprehensible and then other things um, maybe just distasteful or confusing? And I was giving this talk, you know, academics, (coughs) academics um, will, will fly each other to, to their home university. So I got an invite from a colleague and, uh, and they fly you in, they put you in a hotel, they give you a, a, you know, a delicious meal, and then you, you sit in front of, or you stand in front of a bunch of people presenting an early version of your work, and they basically shit on your ideas for about an hour. You know? <laughs> and <it's> an <laughs> and odd how e- old are you at this point? I am 38. 38. Okay, I'm 38 at this point. And then you get to put it on your vita that you visited this this elite university, and it's you know it's, right. it's considered prestigious.
1: Were, were there any positive people? Like, were there, was there anybody? No, no, no. <laughs> well,
3: I'm being I'm 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 being hyperbolic, but I but it is really the case that, that academics sort of critique first, second, third, and fourth, and then fifth they compliment. That's mm. just the way. This <laughs> is the nature of the sort of scientific process. And so I was, I was talking about religious marketing at the time. And, and this, you know, like, why is it that we might find it reprehensible for churches to use business principles, um, even though, even if their goal is to save souls, which you would assume to be a rather um, uh, important thing for them. And I gave, I, in that talk, I gave an entertaining example of a church in Tampa, Florida that was using a raffle to get people to go to their winter retreat. That seems okay. But they picked an unusual grand, grand prize for the raffle, which was a yellow H2 Hummer SUV. And, uh, and exactly, and I got like this, I didn't get like a full on laugh, but I got people sort of chuckled at the idea. And I wanted them to chuckle at the idea. That's why I chose the right. the, the example. Um, you know, we, Just because science doesn't mean we can't have fun. And someone raised their hand in the back of the, the room and asked me the most important question that's ever been asked of me, which, which is, you're making an argument that moral violations cause anger and disgust, and yet we're laughing. Why? Oh, because
1: can I guess? <laughs> of, of course, yeah, of course. Uh, because of the, obs- like, sometimes when I watch Dr. Phil, the, uh, I know, whatever you think of the show, you can still get what you need to get out of this. And the audience laughs, and the the guest thinks, oh, you're laughing at me, your audience is laughing at me. They're not laughing at you, they're laughing at the absurdity. Mm. Is there
3: anything? Yeah, I think, well, so, to me, absurdity is a special um, case of comedy, so to speak. And so, you know, I didn't have an answer in that moment. I had nothing. And I'm usually someone who can come up with something, you know. And uh, I said, I don't know. And what I realized was I had never contemplated that question. Mm-hmm. So I had been studying um, emotions and decision making for 11 years at that point. I had considered myself an expert in, in that area. I had never read a paper about humor. I never contemplated what made people laugh, what caused amusement. And so when I, when I flew back home to, to Boulder, Colorado, to the University of Colorado, where um, uh, my home institution, I just couldn't shake the idea. And I Um, I made an appointment with um, with one of my very bright graduate students who wanted to work with me, but we couldn't settle on something. And I said, we should write this paper, which is why do people laugh at moral violations? And that quickly turned into why do people laugh at what? Moral violations, things that are unethical. Right. And then that turned into a theory of humor, you know dry esoteric papers about it that are we're still publishing today um a part pop science part memoir part travel log called the humor code where we leave the lab to to try to answer this question and then here i am sitting with you you know talking about this kind of stuff and
1: then and then uh and then take us to this point now where are then in a, you said April 1st right and that's when the other book came out we were saying so the so my first book
3: came out six years ago April 1st and um, did you pick April 1st for any other day than just this is a <laughs> PR stunt right yeah <laughs> of course but uh, so so to answer your question um, why you know what do we laugh at what are we amused by so we we use this term um, benign violations so things that are wrong yet okay things that are threatening yet safe Things that don't make sense yet make sense, and um, and when you start to apply that concept, you can start to explain a lot of the things that people find funny. Um, you know, absurdity is an interesting one. I haven't actually run any studies on it, but I've always I've always puzzled about uh, absurdity and thought about it as it's this thing that there's clearly something wrong going on, but it almost doesn't feel real. Like things that are absurd often have this unreal concept to Ooh. it. Almost feels imaginary. Like Ooh-hmm. I can't believe this is happening. You know, people say. That right, all right, the time. right. Well, when when something is not real, it removes um, it removes the threat, right? Because things that are made up, that are fictitious, aren't aren't truly threatening. Uh, right in the world. And like so mu- like murders versus goblins.
2: <laughs> yes,
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like um it's like bad horror films are funny. Right, cuz there's right. Cuz you can reckon it's like they're not truly threatening. Oh, you're something you said you, you just said a minute ago and I want
1: Oh, absurdity. Yes. Um did I interrupt you? No. Absurdity I always said absurdity, and I'll even try to explain this to some of my comedian friends who are having trouble with a joke not going over, I go, absurdity has to be earned. If you're sitting around the house and your friends know your hardcore views on an issue, you know, maybe they know, and then, and then you say something absurd, it's because they know that you don't really feel that yeah, way. It's not, yeah,
3: that's exactly So right.
1: sometimes I think that's when, it, when a comedian tells a joke, and a friend of mine even, and he'll be like, yeah, I didn't get a laugh, I go, because they don't know whether you're saying that absurd or not. They don't know your stance on that issue. We would laugh in the living room if you said that, because we know you adamantly defy or back some you know some issue, and you're saying it in an absurd way. We know it's fucking absurd, but the audience doesn't, so that's I not their you about fault.
3: It. You have to earn it.
1: You have to earn, if you say something to mock homophobia, they have to know you're not homophobic. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they don't know, wait, is this guy saying that, mo-? and I think you have to earn that. Like, Well, I used to have this joke in my act, and I used to. It was I didn't want them to think I was sexist, so I happened to really like Oprah at the time, and people would. So I made the Oprah joke, defending Oprah. It was a joke about defending Oprah, but got a laugh. But it was basically defending Oprah. And then later, when I did that other joke, it worked because they go, "Oh well, this guy isn't." He obviously, yes. so that's what I mean. Absurdity has to be earned, you know.
3: Uh, yeah, so. So, so the way I've always sort of thought about this, and, and you probably have dozens of examples of this as, as, a, as a professional comedian, is so if, you, so if you take this benign violation framework and you think about it as two levers. I have a lever that makes something wrong and I have a lever that makes things okay. And so the best jokes you're pushing both of the levers fully. So it's really wrong, but it's also really okay. So, you know, you just alluded to one way that you make, um, make something okay, you know, you, you make a, um, an off-color risque joke about a woman, but the group already knows that you're a feminist, right? And that's the okay lever. And so um, it just so happens to be the case that there are an infinite number of ways to make something wrong, and there's an infinite number of ways to make them okay. And it just happens to be very difficult to be at the intersection of those things. Mm -hmm. right? And so if it's just wrong, people are pissed at you. And if it's just okay, they're like, I came here to laugh, not yawn. And so you're looking for that sort of sweet spot. um, Is is
1: the question who's to say? what's right and wrong
3: well so the audience is always i think the arbiter of that so so again comedy is difficult um and that that that's really what led us to um to write the first book and to go out into the real world and tussle with these with these questions in real life like yes you need a lab to to do the the very controlled tests but you need the real world to to see it in all its glory so to speak now what is wrong and what is okay is determined by the location that you're at, right? You're, if you're in a church or a comedy club, if you're in private or public, it is determined by the culture of the audience, by um, how many drinks you've had, what kind of mood you, have you already been laughing at stuff? You know, so so all of these things start to to um, to have an effect and then what, what good comics are doing is they're, they're figuring out who's my audience and I want to make them laugh because you can't, I mean, you know this, you can't make everyone laugh. Like the same joke that kills with one group dies with another. And then this is something that, that you and I have talked about is how important getting the context right. You know, that, um, that being in the right space and in the right mindset can have a huge effect. Right.
1: Yeah. I always say uh, history. Like I watch the history of comedy and see what mm. tends to still be stands the test of time and look at some common denominators between all the comedy that stands mm. the test of time and mo- a lot of times it's their social social beliefs, okay? Because it, when you punch down, it doesn't stand the test of time well. Even a little down. In the present, all the stuff that they go, oh, come on. like That's not... I, I, if I put punching down on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even in the present, people go after the worst. But in history, even a 3 looks bad. Oh my it God. It doesn't age well. It doesn't
3: age well. No, it doesn't.
1: And it's not my wish on it. I always want to tell comedians and hug them and go, this isn't my wish on you. I, If you listen to me... You'll have a better career. Like I'm telling you, you will thank me. It doesn't age well, and that's not a spell
3: I've put on it. It's not my hoping with a potion that it doesn't age well, all on its own. I agree with that. We we've talked about this on on my podcast. Is like it bothers me. Um, it bothers me when middle aged comedians make fun of young people. You know, it's just also by the way, those same middle aged comedians were being made fun of. When they were young, people. right? It's so it, and they didn't appreciate it. You know what it I mean? Right, 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 right. Yes. So I, <laughs> I agree with you. I, you know, it is interesting thinking about what are the universals. I get that question a lot. The universals of comedy, like what is the thing that's universally funny? And um, and the best answer I have is is physical comedy, slapstick, because that has that that harmless attack kind of element to it right so so you know comedy really evolved from tickling and play fighting you, you know from you know so so um you can you know apes and chimps and bonobos monkeys and so on laugh you know they don't laugh the like way we do but it's essentially the same phenomenon and when do they do it they do it when they're play fighting right so from harmless attacks and so You can there's actually even research, there's this incredible YouTube video of this Washington State professor tickling rats. And so he he like kind of you can imagine sort of like you know, if you flip them over and kind of rub their belly and all this kind of stuff. And rats are really social animals. And you can't hear anything with the human ear, but if you if you put this detector in there, it you pick up these sort of ultrasonic chirps. And it's their indication that they're having fun. And, they, and it's so amazing because it's so crazy. And then what he'll do is he'll move his hand away from them to the other side of the cage. And the rats will chase the hand to try to engage with it. Well, that's like someone going, turning on Netflix to see your special. You, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, it's the same exact phenomenon, except they're th- th- instead of a hand, it's your jokes. Your words. Yeah, exactly. It's incredible.
1: You think, uh, I always think if I, if I you know, uh, if I hear, like, somebody break down comedy, mm-hmm. uh, that it helps me be a better comedian. That's why I think comedians, like, that's why I was interested to have you on the show, and mm-hmm. that's why I, just, you know, because it's not a, a technical business. I get it. I get it, some people will go, it's not a technical business, you can't break, you can do both. I, you yeah. can be silly and break it down. You can break it down to help make you be a better comic. And help you, because a lot of the things that you said a few times, I don't even know if you realize it, but you were saying how the careers of these people took these weird turns, which means even back then there were new things happening in comedy, and you either embraced it or you shit on it yes. and got left in the wind.
3: I agree with that. And It's, and t- it, it's, tec- it's innovation. Right. Right? So that's the thing is if if you were a comic and you ignored Twitter you know and if you're a comic and, and they you go ignore back Instagram or marks
1: from the theater to people probably ignored TV they went oh Jesus now you got to do something set right? Yes. And it so never worked for anybody
3: that ignored it. I think I mean, look I think the issue is this is if you want to grow and if you want to grow with audiences then you need to be aware. So <laughs> there's this bit um uh it's not even a bit. So Um, I talk I actually talk a lot almost too much about Jerry Seinfeld in in this new book Um, in part because he is such you know he's he's such an observer and then he he just loves talking about comedy he won't shut up about it but um, he got interviewed about Seinfeld and about how it's it's become more popular as a result of syndication reruns and so on and so he says you know, this whatever, Channel 5 or whatever, you know, was kind of like the ratings were starting to go down. And so they're like, okay, we're not going to renew it. We're not going to keep renting, you know, Seinfeld. And they're like, okay, fine. And then another station, Channel 7, let's say, um, says, well, we're going to pick it up. And so what you would expect is, okay, so the the ratings are going down on 5, then it moves over to 7. But the ratings don't stay there, they go up. And he's like, I just don't I have to understand this. Why is this happening? And his thing is, there are channel five people and there are channel seven people, you know? And so um, you can't just expect people to find your comedy because you know there's Instagram people, there's Twitter people, there's comedy club people, there's Netflix people, there's Amazon, you know and so so to understand, yeah, I mean this is called vaudeville theater, the t- film TV. These are just platforms that are technologically based. And so I, I think a lot of comedians don't give themselves enough either credit for being good business people or thinking um, in thinking that way, or they ought to. You know, they ought to be even better about approaching this craft because, as you know, it's so hard.
1: I learned as I get older that, Like, there's certain guys that just understand the business of comedy, and they tend not to be the best comedians. Mm, That's fair. But but just when they understand it, and they don't have... But, 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 but... I also know guys that are funny in their bones, but understand the business of comedy. That's the
3: deadly one-two punch.
1: Exactly. Exactly, like Jim Gaffigan. Jim Gaffigan is a funny fuck, but the fact that he understands and embraces... The, you know, when, when – uh, the, the, whatever it is, whether whether it's Instagram or whether it's Twitter or whether it's – you know, when we're setting up, getting ready for a show, he turns on his phone and, you know, touch base with people. Here we are. It just mm-hmm. He does it effortlessly. He understands the business of comedy, and he is a funny person in his bones. You're right. Those are the people like – and that's a compliment. That's it is. No, oh, no, no. I actually – we're both think... complimenting that, obviously. You know, John Mulaney, I would say, is a guy. He's funny in his bones, but he also understands some... That's why I like to understand it myself. I didn't used to, but now I like to go, okay, what, what, what is this here? What, what will help me be a better comedian? You know, and Breaking it down for me does help.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't claim that having a theory of humor is going to necessarily make someone funnier. My argument is that it might cut the learning curve, right? So, right. so imagine you're a new... Com- so first of all, I don't, again, comics have been doing just fine without a theory of, of humor. And actually, they have theories, and the theories are wrong, and they still seem to be doing okay, <laughs> right? So, so, right, right. So, so I'm not going to claim to have, like, oh, a magic so. bullet. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that we can both agree that having some... A little bit of either like a business orientation or or a scientific or orientation, at least an empirical orientation, which is I'm going to. I, so I like to say. So in the, in this book, I, I talk about how vaudeville was the first lean startup, and that oh, wait, is what does that mean. So so if you so you know a lot of stand up comedy really flows from what was happening in in the world of vaudeville, and so what was happening in the world of vaudeville is the same thing that you do, which is. You, you, tr- you have an idea for a joke. You have an intuition. Oh, this could be funny. You've written it out a little bit. But you don't really have any idea of how good or bad it is until you try it in front of a small audience. I mean, you, don't ever try a, you never try a joke, a brand new joke with one of your specials. By the time the special comes out, you know it works. And so, um, so what is it that, that um, a lean startup does is it comes up with what they, what they call an MVP, a minimum viable product. You know, pe- the argument is, is, is like it, could, it can be embarrassingly bad, but what you want to do is put it out into the marketplace and then pay attention to how the market responds. What do people like? What are they not like? And then you make a decision, which is um, keep it, revise it, or dump it. And so most times that first time you tell a joke, it's not a keep it decision. It's either a revise it or dump it. And it's probably a revise it. And then you revise it, try again. And you, you know, you pay attention and then you keep it, revise it, dump it. And you try it again, keep it, revise it, dump it. And all the, excuse me, all the way, you know, honing it. So then eventually it's this pristine joke that you tell in front of a large, large audience in front of six cameras. And you're pretty sure it's going to land at that point. And I think that the the folks who, as you said, have funny in their bones, they're better. they have better instincts. They're better at the revisions. But the people who are really good at paying attention and charting these things, and I mean, I talk to comics who have Excel spreadsheets. Like they're more like me than they are like Dave Chappelle. Right. You know. And they, I would
1: split. The, I like to split the difference. Okay. Like, I don't want to be. I've Trust learned, me, you don't want to be me.
3: <laughs> I don't want to
1: be, you know, just, you know, I've learned that I can, I can benefit being doing what I do on stage, which is sort of just having my path, but also going off of it and just mm-hmm. fucking have a random thought and going right and going left. But that doesn't mean that I can't make myself a much better comedian. And like you say, the, the more solid I get my beaten path. And that's if I choose to be a performer that can go out on the road and do well. And I do. Mm-hmm. I want to do well. I want to be the type of performer that I would want to go see. People spend hard-earned money. Sometimes money they don't fucking even have or have the right to spend. So if I want to make people pay 25 bucks to see a show, I want it to be a fucking great show. Yes. So, but I find the more I get the beaten path down, the get that beaten path solid, you can go off of it. So be creating a beaten path is in honor of going off the beaten path indeed so that's why i like to uh to figure out sometimes the science hearing people you know maybe like jerry seinfeld that might be a little more pen and paper than me but still go eh, you can do a little bit of that you can you can get together with some comedian friends and and help spice up some jokes you have or a lack of a better word of saying it you know i've learned that more in the last two years than ever why is that uh, uh you know there's a comedian in philadelphia and his name is chip chantry and and um, whenever I'm working in Philadelphia, I have a joke that I've been doing. And I'll be like, jokingly, on stage, he opened up the show. And I'll go, hey, Chip, write me three more of those. And, uh. Uh, and he comes out the, the green room door 20 minutes later, and he gives me three more. And I read them. I'm like, he fucking took that That's great. from sitting down and analyzing it and going, oh, well, we could go there with that. And then I do it again. I'm like, Chip, give me four more of those. And he <laughs> knocks on the green room door. He comes out. So I went. Oh, I can benefit by getting together with some comedian friends during the day and, and, and or reading a book, uh, or I won't read a book because I'm not good at reading, but I will like I want someone to read
3: your book and then tell it to you. Exactly I see. <laughs> exactly. I think I know a guy who could do that for yeah. you. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one to my left and one to my right. <laughs> so that's
1: why I, I, uh, and, uh, so that's why I enjoy hearing like comedy. You know I like because because I, I, you know it, it helps you be sillier if you can understand the, the business of it and the bit, there's a reason it's called show business. Yes.
2: Hey, Oh, Hey,
1: Oh, ah, Oh, I was too busy. I wanted to get a bell or something. All
3: right. There you go. I do. Um, so I, so for me, what's interesting is no one really cared about my first book. I, well, I shouldn't say that. That's, a, that's an exaggeration. But the book didn't sell that well. It got, like, a lot of media attention. And it's been popular in comedy circles. But the average person doesn't really care that much about what makes things funny. Like, it's sort of a nice curiosity. And some people watch my TEDx video and so on. But it doesn't really solve a major problem for anyone. This is sad to say. Um, you know, it's it's important for science and... and um, it's a compelling question it's an age-old question but what prompted me to write stick to business was so my first thought was well if we can make people funnier they're going to have a lot a lot more um, positive outcomes in life kind of thing and then like the more I sort of studied that and the more I, I kind of started giving talks on that topic I started to go oh no we don't want to do this right we don't i don't want to go in front of 100 people or 1000 people and tell them to go forth and be funnier and especially at work right <laughs> you can imagine what happens right you know cuz there's only like only you know let's say let's be generous and say a third of people are well skilled like that's great for those third you know
1: exactly but, but you're by the way good for you for being aware of the fire you might start oh my other, God.
3: you're like oh no no, I don't want to be I don't that guy. Have, <laughs> you got to right, worry right, about right. that guy, you know. And so then I had. Wait,
1: hold on, can you ask you one? Yeah, of course. So I can relax. How? 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 What time is it? There's never a great time to ask that, but I figure out
3: it's now. Six thirty. Oh, great! We're doing on time. Yeah, we're doing okay. great. We're doing awesome. Sure, sure. Okay, so go ahead. Um. So, and I don't, I don't know about your creative process, um, but I find that. Um, you know, for me, there's sort of, and actually there's research that backs this up. So, so what is creativity? So creativity is an original appropriate solution to a problem. Okay. So, um, so it's actually often pretty easy to find an appropriate solution. It's often difficult to find an original one. And so there are two paths to, to creativity. One is just persistence Like, I'm just going to work on this idea. I'm going to work on this idea. I'm going to work on this idea. I'm going to come up with a hundred ideas, and then one of them is bound to be creative. And then the other one is you allow yourself to work um, on an idea here and there, and you just recognize that there are multiple solutions, and you just kind of pay attention to your thoughts. And occasionally, you have a thought, and you go, there it is. And it feels like this bolt of lightning, but it's not. It's because you've been working on something, writing, thinking, letting it go, letting it come back and right. so on. And so I had always said, I'm never gonna write another book. And I, I realized that I didn't wanna do a talk about, um, about humor and leadership or something like that. And I got asked, actually got asked by um, this group at Google to give me a talk, to give a talk to them. And I, I kind of pitched an idea and they're like, well, we already have someone like that. And so they, they put down this constraint for me, which counterintuitively constraints are, can be useful for creativity. Right. And then I said, well, I could give a talk about not what makes things funny and not about being funny, but what can we learn from the world's funniest people from the masters of comedy. And... Suddenly this stuff was just pouring out of me from having, you know, having studied comedy, having spent time in green rooms, having done improv, having friends who were comedians and having a life, you know, a lot of life experiences both in the lab and outside the lab. And um, I was like, oh, wow, these are some of these ideas are really novel. You're not getting them in business books. You're not getting them in self-help books and so on. And so, um, so that was where this came from. So I never, I, I like to say, I'll never ask you to tell a joke you know, in the book, right? There's, there's nothing about being funny, but it's about thinking funny. It's about thinking differently. And so y- you don't even, you have, you have techniques, you have perspectives, you have practices that you use, you use them automatically. And, um, and you might not even realize that you use them. Well, people can use those things, whether it be to start a new business or to try to develop their career. There's more crossover than you think. Exactly. Yes. And
1: it always amazes me. Yes. How so, much crossover there is. Uh,
3: so I'll give you an example of this. So one of the things that I'd like to point out is how comedians take chances. So they, they sort of, first of all, they see the world differently. So, so Seinfeld calls them humanoids. You know, they're not aliens, but they're not humans. So they, they kind of... you know. So as a result, they, they ask why a lot. You know, they notice things that, no, that other people don't a- really And notice. as they age. What do you mean? Little kids ask why, but then oh, you stop. and then they stop. But,
1: but then a, a comedian or artistic, asking. you could say, you could wide to pass.
3: But yes, they keep asking, why, keep asking why, which, you know... And then they, the other things that they do... And so when you, when you have a different perspective on life, you start to notice opportunities that other people don't notice you know and that that's really most entrepreneurial ventures come from from an observation that you know that most people aren't having and then the other thing is that comedians take chances they're constantly breaking rules they're constantly taking risks the act of of developing a joke is a series of chances But then they also, because they don't play well in kind of normal organizational sort of settings, they're sort of always kind of a little bit of an outsider that's there. And so I think about um, I think like I really love what you're doing with your comedy, having this band play with you. Um, I think it's great, and in particular because in the pursuit of comedy, novelty, creativity is paramount. You know, so, um, you, you can't, you're not a musician, you know, the Rolling Stones can play their hits on tour. You have to give up jokes in order to create new jokes. And you're in you know, you called it. You, you said it, it's show business. You want to entertain people. And so people aren't having a band with them. Let's take a chance. Let's see how this goes. You know, the average person doesn't do that. And yet, the average person probably would be better off doing more of that right. kind of thing. You, you know, the, we, we were talking about this last night, and it has to
1: do with uh, specifically stand-up comedians. But up to this point, for the last three years, I've been doing it like I'm going to do it with you right now. And it is that somebody famous and successful said, if you're not working with stand-up comedians, you're wasting your time. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that Brad Pitt shouldn't have a career or you know, whoever it is. But what it means is that comedians tend to get shit done. Mm. And I'm proud of that. But isn't it sort of alluding to what you're saying, that there must be something... And it, it, it's I guess it's a moment of feeling proud instead of me taking... I'm not taking the glory, but proud of comedians.
3: Like, why is it true? I, I think that, yes. So I think the the thing is, there's a tendency to, you know, to take... To look at comedians They're kind of misfits, you know, and... They wear cargo shorts on stage and they drink too much. And you know what I mean? Like there's this sort of, they're outsiders and they misbehave and, and, um, and you think, okay, well they tell jokes and that's, that's good, but a little frivolous. But my argument is, I mean, I'm starting a consulting agency where I'm like, I'll bring comedians into your business to help you solve problems (sighs) because a, they're whip smart. Right? B, they have a way to see the oh, Well, I know that sounds disgusting. I just go, right. Ugh. No, no, no. But, look, uh... I can tell you this. The research is clear. <laughs> when the best predictor... Good, <laughs> right. Oh, you're telling me exactly. But
1: Go ahead, go ahead. I know I'm okay with saying it, but I have to no, 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 preface no, the absurdity of
3: it. The, but the, 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 the research is your clear. business because... Yes, exactly. Like, you, look, I'm not sure you want to hire a, a comedian to work for you full-time, but when you have a particular problem and you want a different perspective. So, I'll get, so, so this guy, this like engineer at MIT did, a, um, did his doctoral thesis on um, looking at like improvisers. And he, he pit improvisers against product designers to, to, in a task to figure who could come up with more creative ideas. The improvisers won, right? So the, you know, like so- It's not even their thing. Their not thing, things, even their improvising, th- but they out—they—they—they they, they were like twenty-five percent better than these product designers. And, and when you say improvisers, improvisers in what capacity? You know, I, I'd have to go back and read the doctoral thesis. But these were—you know—these were, I think, like you know, you can imagine like. Matt Besser, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> these are advanced improvisers. So these are people who are good at what they do. Well, so, oh, so maybe yeah, Matt
1: Besser. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, I think it was probably Boston folks. Okay. You know. Okay. I
1: know. I know not him, but, yes. but that's what you mean when you mean improvisers. I wasn't sure. Like, do you mean like guys that? I think advanced are improvisers. In ba- study. guys that are okay. Okay. So yeah. So and then they did better than people than the product designers. Yeah. And, and what? Why do you think that is?
3: I, I mean, well, so I think I think in general you know, when you do comedy, you know, you recognize how persistence matters. And then, you know, with years and years of doing this, you just get wired in such a way to think what we call divergently. So there's two forms of thinking. Convergent thinking is to come to figure out that one solution, two plus two equals four. But divergent thinking recognizes that there are multiple solutions. And Which is usually probably the case, right? For for almost any, anything of importance, right? Because you don't need humans for convergent thinking, right? That's the job that that robots are going to take. AI is going to take those jobs, you know, because that's it's why like AI does well on standardized tests. Um, the, the kind of work that's going to become increasingly important is work that requires divergent thinking, creative thinking, because that's that's work that's not rule based. And so robots do rules well, comedians break rules well, and that's, you know, that's where innovation comes from from breaking rules. I love it. Um, did you blow your
2: nose?
1: <laughs> I told him we'd make a bit out of it. I go, "Just blow your nose at the table and like, move away from the mic, and then we'll all be like, make." And I, we'd all go, "Oh, so disgusting, so rude. I that way you don't have to get up and down, but, I the, see. but I like Oh yeah, to go to the bathroom.) Uh, you, you. Uh, uh, I, I'm curious if from afar or from 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 the way you're looking at things, someone like specifically. Hold on, I wrote it down. Not Amy. Oh, Tina Fey. Tina Fey. Like yeah. I love looking at Tina Fey's career, mm. and I'm I'm in my I am in, in in awe of it. I'm in awe of it. Uh, I would imagine you're a Tina Fey fan as well. I am. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and uh, what do you? What, can afar from you like? Can you look at her career and sort of like? And dissect her, where yeah, her success yeah. comes from. Yeah, like except for having fun in her bones, but we're given that. We're, we're that's a given. No one's trying to think that you could scientifically make someone funny. You're not. I'm not. No, nobody that knows anything about comedy is. But we're talking about the other end of comedy. Yes. So, uh, uh, because I, I, first of all, the, the, the boundary. I, I just love for years. Every time, well, here's the pro, women can't do this and women can't do that, and I love to watch women just plow past all that shit with a snowplow and just go, yeah, we can pretty much do anything we fucking
3: want. You know indeed. what I mean? Yes. I mean, like the idea that your genitals have anything to do with your abilities in comedy makes no sense to me at Makes all. no sense, right. Yeah. Especially in an artistic world, we're supposed to move past that, you know? Yeah, indeed. So, you know, to me the thing, so Tina Fey comes up in the book just briefly, um, uh, but I can say more about it. So in it, she, she actually talks about... So one thing that I think is fascinating about Tina Fey, and, and I think this is the case with, with a lot of comics, is they pay attention. They see how other people do things, and then they replicate the stuff that works, and then they let go the stuff that doesn't work. So in Bossy Pants, she talks about Lorne Michaels and how he builds a writer's room. And so... Um, In the Saturday Night Live writer's room, he sort of has these two different groups of people that he brings together, the kind of heady Harvard Lampoon types who tend to be kind of really good joke writers. And then the more Chicago style, sort of more blue collar kind of types. And the idea is that the best writer's room has a mix of those two together that they complement each other. If it's too heady and too joke-ready, it doesn't work. If it's too blue-collar, you know, you don't have, yeah, yeah. have the stuff. And so, same thing with stand-up. Same with stand-up. Like, there's th- this... Um, so, you know, well, what happens? So Tina, so Tina Fey has, has the writing chops, no doubt, and then she also has the performance skills, right? So she has both... Um, you know what you need during the day in order to to work on material, and then what you need at night to be able to to sort of perform it. But you know, where's Tina Fey's I think real legacy is um, in you know in Thirty Rock especially, but even like Mean Girls, you know, like what an outstanding comedy film. Right, I agree. I I watched that for the first time. I was like forty two years old, <laughs> and I was like, damn, this movie is good. And it's good because it's so well written, like like Thirty Rock. Thirty Rock is so well written. And then when you think about that kind of complementation, you know, you have um, Alec Baldwin, um, and uh, oh my goodness, what a Tracy Tracy Morgan. Tracy Morgan, right? You know, wh- that show does not work nearly as well when if you omit one of those one of those folks, right. And so, you know, you imagine, like, the three of them in a room, that scene just pops.
1: It's great. Sometimes I watch that show, I go, you know what the worst, you know what I know about the worst, I say this about a few shows, but it's definitely appropriate for, uh, for uh, 30 Rock, the worst show, the worst show they ever fucking did is fucking great. Yeah, it's really... <laughs> they, they don't know that. It's really cool how They're very meta. They talked about why they brought on Tracy Morgan, being like, "It's a different element they needed to the show that's in the show." But then talking about it, they explained it in the show that you're watching. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. He's the third heat or whatever. Yeah, I. That's my. That's my. That's like for me TV. I know I can turn on and within ten seconds I'm gonna be laughing. It's just comfort television. It's like mashed potatoes with brown gravy. Oh, (laughs) as soon as I flip by it on the television, and same thing. Not to open up a can of worms, even though Seinfeld, lately his opinions, I adamantly, ugh. But, 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 the show?
2: oh, uh, yeah.
3: I don't know. And that's how good that fucking show is. Well, so, so, I, you know, I go a bit into, into why that show's so good. So, um, there's two things, well, I, so I think there's kind of like, there, there's uh, three things that help make Seinfeld so good. So one is Larry David. Ugh. And so... You know, uh, so I, I talk about this idea of we want to we want to kind of have the lone genius you know we want to like your point pan? please I want to hear what you're saying, but I don't want to
1: forget to bring this up when you're done, but I don't want to just be repeating it in my head. Um, what was the thing you just said about what, a oh Larry what, David Larry, Larry, oh, okay, the there we genius. go. now I can listen to yeah. you, <laughs>
3: but remember what I want to talk about So and, sh- and uh, go ahead when you when you look at so so first of all, when you look at comedy um, we we often want to bestow someone as a comic genius and I you know of course I think that's fair especially you know from a creative standpoint but when it comes to making something so making a special making a show or anything you start to very quickly realize that that genius needs lots and lots of other people right so um so I um I interview Meryl Marco for the book so Merrill Marco most people don't know this but she was sort of the gal behind the guy so she was a producer and writer for Letterman for many many years right that and that was letterman's late night what's w- that mar well she was she she was they, they dated up, a bit but and
1: she came up with like she had a lot to do with she
3: something. invented stupid pet tricks, she was right. the one who 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 guided him into the man on the street interviews because he wasn't <laughs> a very good actor she wrote jokes for him at the comedy store back in the day right and 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 uh
1: not that this is even relevant right now, but I'm so... Is Mar- How is she doing now? Do you She's know
3: great. She-, she lives out in Malibu. I, I visited oh, her. She's like... Well, Letterman definitely credits her, right? Or not Yeah, I think, I think anybody in the know knows... Knows. I like to say there is no late night with David Letterman without Meryl Marco. There is no Chappelle Show without Neil Brennan. There, you know, there is no Seinfeld without Larry David. Like, you need oftentimes See, that person behind the scenes that are they're alike enough that they get along and they share a lot but they're different enough that they bring things to the table. The, the,
1: the, I, first of all, I totally agree with you. Okay. And I wouldn't just jam this in there Please. to take a jab at Jerry Seinfeld. But look, he's not dead. He's a young guy when it comes to comedy. I may pretend everything I say that what if the person I was critiquing heard it? Okay. And I try to say it in a way that they'd be able to take it in. Okay. And amongst a few things that Jerry has said over the last few years that bother me, I have an immense respect for Jerry Seinfeld. I love the show. I love him. I love his respect for comedy. I love that he treats comedy with respect and dignity. But lately, it doesn't mean that... And the thing that bothers me, okay. that Jerry Seinfeld is famous for saying why can't you be normal to do comedy? Now, when I say you have to be a little abnormal to do it, it doesn't mean I have to be addicted to heroin sure. or have some. But you beat to a different drum. And I, to me, the problem with Jerry lately that bothers me, and I wish he was a little more self-aware, that if he would say, you know, I don't, what are you doing the therapy for? When he, you know, with, with, with Gary Shandling or the mocking any self you know, self analyzation or therapy or you know, growing and and is that if he was somewhat self-aware, it's okay to say it, but he would catch himself and go, you know, oh, you know, because you know, you know what I'm talking about a little bit, right? Little like you bit, know, yeah. Shanling, it's always like, oh, what do you stop? What do you have to? What do you? What but if he was self-aware, he'd say it and take a pause and go, but then again, maybe I should shut up. Larry David had his handprint all over my show, handprint all over my show, and he tends to be to a different drum. So maybe I should shut the fuck up. I see. I'm saying, not me saying that about him, saying about himself and going, yeah, maybe my, my probably my legacy won't be my stand-up. It'll be my show, which was so had so had so much depth. It was simple, but it was difficult, and that's my problem because it's sort of what you're saying as far as bringing in Tracy Morgan and in, into that situation. Yes. And that, that that I wish Jerry was self-aware enough to go. You know, I know I always give that big speech about how normal you can be, but maybe I should. Sh- and realize the imprint of abnormal on my show is what will make it stand the test of time that it had
3: depth. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, he, so one of the things that he did with that show that I, I like a lot. So, so I, um, so in one of the chapters in the book, I call it work hard or hardly work. And so I, I think that comics are great at this. You know, they're, they're good about doing their writing. They're good about being at open mics, but then they're also good about being bored. Like They're good at like letting themselves get away and have fun and, and so on. And so in that chapter, I talk about protecting your time. So you want to protect your time so that you can work on your creative work. And this this is like, if you work in a corporate environment, if you're a founder of a company, if you're an academic, if you're a comic, you need sacred time to do your most important work, your most rewarding professional work. So... Um, Seinfeld and Larry David had this. So when they knew that when the, the most important part of the show was the script. And so when they were finalizing a script, they would go into the office and they would close and lock the door and no one was allowed to interrupt them. The only person who interacted with them was, was the secretary. So they would bring out these, you know, written these pages of notes all, with all these notes on there. And then she would type, like, type it up. And every so often she would crack up laughing at something that was in the, in the script and they would like burst out of the, the office and ask her what was <laughs> they were laughing at, what she was laughing at. That was the, their only interruption. So they would protect their time. And, and that's so
1: Larry, David, and Jerry. Jerry, those in two. In the room.
3: In the room, that's it. And um, so there was no questions about costume, set design, you know, whatever it was, because they knew that, that 80% came from that 20% that's right. So the other thing I talk about is the grind, this idea that um, you, you need to work on your craft every day. You know, that it's like, it's a regimented thing. You know, you can't, you can't cram 14 hours of work and expect the same effect of doing two hours a day for seven days. And so Jerry talks about this when he's, when he's, um, preparing a stand-up special. He, you know, he says, don't break the chain. You know, he has this big desk calendar. He makes an X when he works on his material the next day, an X. After three days, there's three X's, there's a chain, and his thing is keep working on it a little bit at least every single day. Um, the third thing is, uh, so you use just protect, there's grind, and then um, release. To, to let yourself step away from this work, in order to recharge and refresh and spend time with people you care about, get some sun, get some exercise, get some rest. So, you know, Jerry has been meditating since the seventies. Uh, and he would meditate. So he
1: is, so he is spiritual in that sense. Yeah. He, you okay. know, he,
3: he recognizes that, that even the most calm person needs to be able to calm themselves even further. And he credits being able to work on that show Because it's an incredibly tiring, challenging thing to do. And you can imagine being not only, you know, one of the lead writers, but also the star of the show and everything else that comes along with it. And so, you know, you have a tendency to just go, oh, that person's a comic genius. And then when you start, you pull the curtain back, so to speak, you start going, oh, wow, they have practices that allow them to maximize their craft. Right.
1: Guess what, Peter? Yes, sir? we got to go to close. All right. But guess what? I think I'll see how I'm good at wrapping things up. For the last two years on this show, I've been quoting that comedians, you know. Th- but I have a feeling that wrapping that up and figuring that out, which I will put in there who it was. Okay. But also, the book uh, will help even explain that further. Because like you said, like you'd be surprised how much crossover there is. For comedians to read the book, of course, because I fucking love I love talking about comedy, but for a teacher or anybody, they have no to idea take, what happens behind the scenes. No, and to yeah. take that and think there is—you could take that why that person, which we now know who it is, we don't in this room, but the audience knows because I said it—to to why that person said that, and then you can apply it um, the business end of comedy to something that you do is is I think uh, I, I think a really positive thing. So I'm saying.
3: Go fucking buy the book. Amazon.
1: <laughs> Amazon. And, and if there's any business end of it, now's the time. Like, what, get, make it easy for people that are listening to the show that go, yeah, I want to go get it. And, okay. and that way, I'll repeat it up front, but I I'll see. hear you say it here. So uh, it's Amazon.
3: Sure, yeah. So the, the book uh, launches on April 1st, on April Fool's Day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the best place to get it is on Amazon, whether it be Audible, an ebook or the soft cover. And your, what is your podcast called? So my podcast is called "I'm Not Joking," mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's a look at the lives of funny people.
1: Wow, that was in- that was good. That was <laughs> intense. You feel heard? That was great. Is there anything I didn't ask you?
3: <laughs> um, no, no. You know this. It's actually inter- This is my first like interview about the about the book. So I'm I got to get used to you know my um, hitting my major points. Well, um. there we go.
1: So thank you. How do we ride out? Can we ride out with a song? What's a good song? How about... Comedy I? St- how about comedy? Something familiar. <laughs> um, so thank you very much. Yeah, sure. That was fun. And, I, and, and, and April 1st, we'll give it another plug when that comes around. That'd be great. On this show, we'll, we'll give it a plug. And uh, my listeners, uh, blah, 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 blah. We'll, we'll be back. Why don't we ride out with... You want to play Andy Frasco's new single? Yeah, there we go. So there we go. Uh, did you, we put your name up there, Peter McGraw, oh, ladies true. and gentlemen. And uh, we'll yeah, we'll ride out with Andy Frescos. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. I loved it. There we go. You hear the music? Is it coming in? I, I,
0: It's you I like. Scarpins Avenue A podcast
2: <clears throat> a podcast network.